Welcome to The Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we explore the frontiers of technology and discover the remarkable journeys of those shaping our digital future. Today, Mark is joined by Michelle Dennity, a veteran privacy leader and champion of ethical data use. As Chief Privacy Officer at Sun Microsystems, Oracle, and McAfee, Michelle pushed the boundaries of what it means to build privacy into the fabric of business. Now, as CEO of startup Privacy Code, she's empowering organizations worldwide to operationalize privacy and earn trust through accountable data practices. Join us for a fantastic discussion about Michelle's remarkable journey from patent attorney to globally recognized privacy trailblazer, her experience testifying before Congress, her recent appearance on The Dr. Phil Show, and more. It's time for another adventure of Alice and Bob. Cool. Michelle, welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Great to have you here with us today. Thank you. I'm ready to go on an adventure, Mark. Let's go. Oh, wow. All right. I'll see if I can live up to it because I, I think you, you've been uh, 25 years or so working in like privacy, data governance and so forth. Is that right? It might be a little bit more than that, but yeah, around that era, I've been I've been at this for a super long time. I started last century. Awesome, awesome! And how how did that actually start for you? Like, what what led you on this journey to begin with? Yeah, so I, I was a patent litigator starting out at a firm called Fish and Eve in New York City, mostly doing pharmaceutical stuff and not a lot of high tech. And then um, we had a Palo Alto office a guy named Ed Maloney was the chair out here had a case starting and I was ready to move to the West Coast. This is in the late 90s. And I, I just took a chance and bought a one-way ticket and moved to Silicon Valley and oh. uh, started out in patent litigation. And in the like 1999, halfway through, Sun Microsystems called recruiting for IP lawyers. So I joined Sun and, of course, McNeely infamously had just said, you have zero privacy, get over it. So as you can imagine... <laughs> All of the seasoned and important people ran running and flocking towards this thing that the CEO said was garbage. No, yes. not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. But I did. And, and it, as I looked at it as a, as a patent litigator would is, you know, a series of ephemeral rights. And there's, there's an element of contract. There's an element of human right. There's an element of property law there. There's definitely intellectual property and tons and tons of, um, blue waters to sail on is as far as policy terms and it's never stopped. So I've been at this for a very long time, but I've never been bored once. Yeah. I I find that's always the interesting thing in security, privacy, and related. It's a great field if, uh, if you don't like to get bored, because there's always a new challenge, always a new dynamic to it. And and, And even the old stuff is hard to master. I mean, I, I bumped into this guy's office in 2000 and said, gosh, what are you working on? This looks so cool. And I went home and told my husband and, I said, yeah, this guy named Colonel Sanders is, and he looks like Colonel Sanders and he's doing this, this stuff. And he goes, you mean encryption stuff? He's an engineer. <laughs> I said, yeah. And he goes, was his name Wit? I was like, how did you know that? <laughs> you know I named Whitfield Tiffy and I met he, him in 2000. Yeah, we have some uh, some inspiration to the uh, the podcast name with the uh, uh, the very old uh, Alice and Bob uh, references. So exactly, yeah, yeah. No, that that is very cool. And and so I mean, kind of kind of going down this path in your uh, career, like how did it kind of uh, evolve from there uh, into kind of what you're doing today? Yeah, so um, it started out. Um, there was no organization 
And in fact, in, when I was in, at law school, there was no privacy class. There was barely an intellectual property licensing class. Um, we had just started getting a little bit of regulation around spam and cookies. So this is really early days. And yet yeah. what we were talking about at the turn of last century and as we went through the first boom and bust of the dot-com era was really distributed compute and machine learning and yeah. using things, you know, at that time it was cameras and RFID to create algorithms and learning systems and models, some of which were biased and some were not. Sounds a lot like AI, but this was yeah. really the, the primordial steps of compute was evolving from something that you did on your very own home crafted data center to something that you shared as a society and all of the legal rules needed to catch up with that, the business opportunities and partnership opportunities. And so when I left the legal group in 2002 to become Sun Microsystems first chief privacy officer, we didn't know what that role was. We didn't yep. even know they had to promote me three clicks above where I was in the hierarchy because they didn't have a senior position that was it didn't even exist. And so it's yeah. really taken me from my career of really looking across that platform, going through the acquisition with Oracle, setting up a, a security and privacy sales team once I got there, and then going through, I was at McAfee Intel for a while and then recruited into Cisco. And I realized I could build yet another team from scratch, or I can go back to guest lecturing at Carnegie Mellon on privacy engineering, or yeah. I could take a leap into startup landia, build a platform so that maybe billions of people could learn how to do privacy engineering and build business cases and confront this looming machine learning, which we now are calling AI, but it's bigger than AI. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, so that's and my goal. So I started privacyco.ai in late 2021. Very cool. And I definitely want to come back to privacy engineering, but, I, but I'm curious for, um, you know, maybe, maybe, how you would define it and also maybe how it's kind of evolved, but like the, the role of a chief privacy officer. Uh, Cause I, I think it, at the, the sun time frame that would have been like the early two thousands or so. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm just curious, like how, how do you define it today? And then, um, you know, maybe, maybe for folks kind of how, how has it kind of evolved uh, uh, if at all kind of uh, uh, over time now? Yeah. It's an interesting question because I think it's sort of, it's at its own crossroads right now. So when um, we first created the role of chief privacy officer, first of all, we called it chief because most of us were women and we didn't have a lot of real authority. And so having chief in front of our name helped us get a seat at the table. We, we hadn't really earned at that point. So it was really a new C-level category. Yeah. And by leaving the legal side of the business for me, it enabled me to have a different kind of business discussion with our engineering and sales teams and make it really a chief privacy officer as if it was a true C-level executive function. What does that mean for yep. partnerships? What does that mean for profitability? What does that mean for governance overall? And I had a legal support that stayed in the legal group. Now, these days, a good proportion of folks who call themselves chief privacy officers are actually sitting in the general counsel's office or it's the general counsel themselves. Some of them are real CPOs, what I call a real CPO. They're thinking okay. like a C-level executive, being strategic, worried about what products and services and infrastructure is actually doing. And then there's another group of them that are truly acting as counsel, 
where they're providing policies, interpreting laws exclusively and having a firm expectation that business clients, whether that's the CTO, the CISO, or business units are actually executing. And I, I tend to lean on a strategic player as, you know, you really have become, if, if data is the new currency, privacy is her banker. Yeah. Privacy yeah. is the place where you tell the correct story about the correct person in the correct context. So it's not about secrecy. It's not about sequestration or even security. That's an important element. It's not yep. about just making money and selling data. That's an element of it. It's not yep. about public policy exclusively. That's an element. So like so many other chief officers, I really view the leader in privacy is a dynamic role that really is looking across and doing that handshake in that fulcrum and saying, I'm the banker of this data currency and it's different for every organization. And so you have to be a flexible, um, really sort of all purpose utility leader to fill that role correctly. Yeah, m- most definitely. And I, I guess to, to your point, there's, there's, um, I'm sure differences depending on the, uh, the, the company. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, maybe in a, in, in a very, uh, mainstream way, you have e- even companies like, uh, Apple that really try to like market privacy as like, yeah a core why you should buy their products and, and technology and stuff. W- what do you think are some of the kind of core principles that are maybe, um, you know, I- important for this role or thinking about privacy that is, you know, s- similar company to, to company if there was uh, some things that stayed the same? Well, I definitely think though there is a huge complexity that a legal background helps. I, I differ from some of my colleagues. I don't think you have to be a lawyer. I happen to have been trained as one, but there's so much complexity that is absolutely inherent to how the legal, uh, the legal lingo is written and, and projected that it helps. Although I will say the caveat to the ones that say, thou shalt be a lawyer. Um, I'm not licensed in 160 different countries where, where these large companies are doing business. I'm not licensed in 10 different countries. And no, I, 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 I shouldn't say no one, but I've never met anyone who actually is an active member of the bar in all of these places. So even though I do have an insider track to be able to interpret laws as a common law trained attorney, I think that's one element. So, and it's a common one and you have to speak the lingo. I think increasingly, if you're doing a good fiduciary job, you're not just buying a vendor and doing a checklist. You're actually looking at what is being achieved. So just like a CFO may not be checking your individual budget and your expenses, you've got the repeatable protocols, you've got the audit, you've got the ear of the board, you've got sort of a fiduciary duty that floats above and beyond any one business unit. I think that's the the real common thread is really privacy is a very active and dynamic place to be right now. That's how we add value rather than becoming really kind of a backwater compliance vehicle. It makes sense. And I, you, you mentioned, you know, given kind of when you were starting in your career and the, the creation of this type of role as like the chief privacy officer, um, part of it is, you know, being a woman in technology and, and uh, I'd say definitely, definitely now, but, uh, even maybe more so then, although I'd be curious your kind of your take on it of like, you know, trying to, to make headway in this area. 
Um, was there any folks that were uh, like an inspiration to you? I mean, I, in some sense, you probably are the inspiration for a lot of folks, given uh, when you got started. And like, no, I mean, like, it, like, like having the, to uh, to to work through all the things that you have at the time frame that you have. Just you know, myself having been around technology and, and security a while. I mean, that's a that's a uh, very early start on on this uh, realm. So, uh, you know, I'm curious was there was there anybody that you know you had to kind of look up to, uh, and with, without a doubt, I mean, you were having to carve your own path, just given the time frame, and and, and again, even even to now. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, and I think this is part of the beautiful thing about um, privacy and and what will whatever we'll end up calling it, like the chief data officer or whatever we'll we'll call it in the future of some sort of a data currency officer. Um, yeah. I think. Well, I, I had I had two very unfair advantages, and one was. My dad uh, was a security architect from the in the fifties, so he started very early in compute. I was raised on a raised oh, wow. floor. I'd go to Standard Oil on the weekends. I got um, we were allowed to do corporal punishment in Ohio when I was a kid. And if you shuffle someone's punch cards and they're using <laughs> a mainframe, you might get taken home and get a paddling because you may have <laughs> personally screwed up payroll <laughs> for Standard Oil. Yeah, um, yeah, I might have resembled that remark. So, you know, I grew up with my dad, you know, and we we moved around a lot as a kid uh, because at that time, you know, you basically would get a, the next company adapted on the mainframe and build out the IT department. Then you'd move on. And so like, we moved to Corning Glass and my dad put in the first database from Oracle. And then he very quickly put in the first fire firewall to protect the first database. So while all that was going on, uh, my mom went to night school when I went to kindergarten for law school and was an intellectual property lawyer. So this blend yeah. was part of my extremely geeky upraising. And so, you know, I've been able to meet people, you know, like, like uh, you know, like walking in and asking what, what he was working on wasn't a mistake. It just was how I was raised and the same yeah. thing. And that's, that was partially also the sun culture was, you know, if you were curious about something, you just ask the question, people are happy to teach you things. Um, that's what also, I was going to kind of ask you. It se seems like you have that, uh, very, uh, I find with a lot of folks kind of in our field, just like the curiosity as like a, just wanting to kind of know how things work and just the curiosity that kind of like drives you. It seems like that was part of oh yeah, uh, part of the start and, and obviously until now also. So a lot of us put together, you know, remember when like I got an Apple IIe plus in the early eighties and like it came in the chassis was separate from the motherboard and you had to do some soldering to get it put together and screw the cabinet together. And, you know, so I took a lot of stuff apart and I put a lot of stuff back together sometimes. Yeah. Right. And so I think that, that level. <laughs> I don't think I ever put it back together. Right. Yeah. Like there's always a couple together. extra pieces. It was right <laughs> enough, Mark. <laughs> right enough. Right enough. <laughs> I, I think that was, I think that's still part of, success is, you know, we were calling it big data, then we called it IoT, and now we're calling it AI. And, and there, there have been appreciable changes, you know, the LLMs are now better than ever. But, yeah. you know, Dragon Softly Speaking was a functional product really, really early on. So we had some voice and we had some IP. So I think if you have this kind of level of curiosity, I think that is an is an absolute unfair advantage in your favor because it's never going to be built, whatever privacy and security is. You're just constantly yeah. reacting to how I define it as authorized contextual processing of data. 
that inherently changes because the element of time is constantly causing that, that organic change. And so that's yeah. who you need to become. And so I was very fortunate to have some, you know, in my patent practice, um, in my early uh, jobs in tech, um, and a lot of generosity of just people around town and people in our community, like Marty Hellman and Whit Diffie are the most generous, lovely yeah. people. And you can just walk in and ask them their craft and they'll actually teach you and not be nasty about it. And I think that yeah. is invaluable. It's like, I always find the most important thing to like pay for because I have very similar examples of folks where it's just like, you know, there's this known security expert, uh, but approaching them as a teenager or whatever else. And it was just like the, the, in the same way that they were, uh, very curious in their own right. Right. Also very enthusiastic to just share and spread the knowledge, which is like, I think an important aspect, maybe they take a, a, a little curve. I, I was told, uh, I didn't get to see it, but, uh, you were on, uh, Dr. Phil last year talking about <laughs> privacy and security. I got, I got to ask about that. <laughs> I was. I was, and that was another <laughs> opportunity. Someone in our community was like, "Hey, who's crazy enough to do this?" And like four yeah. people were like, "Her, she'll go." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So, what I was think, that like? What, what were you? What were you doing on there? It was great. I mean, I, you know, it it is what it is. in, in terms of of mass market, I, I am very yeah. passionate about making sure our message, and I mean our broadly, in in terms of data yeah. and geekdom gets to the common person. So, you know, in the early, in 2010s, I was doing cyberbullying and, and teaching about like what was actually going on behind the walls of Snapchat when it first came on board. And it was not deleting those photos at the time. I don't know if it will still do that or not, but <laughs> so Dr. Phil gets 3.2 million viewers a day. So love him or hate him, whatever your opinions are, 3.2 million people could think about um, what the topic of the day was implanting tech. So it was like some like guy wanted to open his Tesla with an implanted thing. But there was, of yeah. course, the extreme example of this magician who had implanted magnets in her body. And she had like a video of her dead husband implanted in her chest. And it was extreme. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I was yeah. supposed to be like the dorky talking head. So I, I played that role pretty well. <laughs> but, you know, my goal is, you know, if 3.2 million people question um, what would it mean to implant technology or even just take your existing supercomputer phone and actually consume it. And like, yeah. let's do that thought experiment of like, what if instead of saying it doesn't matter to me, it's someone else's problem. I have nothing to hide all of those silly excuses that we hear. Right. Like imagine yourself swallowing your iPhone and everything that it could record and tell about you. And you imagine yourself as part of this fabric of data that's flowing all around us. It yep. changes your perspective on how active you're going to be in protecting your neighbor and your children and asking questions as a consumer. So that's why I went on Dr. Phil and, and, and it oh, makes that's me awesome. a little and bit. It, I really want no. to get the message out that this is fun too. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's, it, it's funny. The few times I've done things with TV, I always get flack from my, from my friends in a good way of, you know, your friends teasing and stuff. Uh, but I always find it's important of like, yeah, if you have a chance to get out like a good message to like a, a, a broad group of folks, especially I think, 
you know, in the field of uh, privacy and related, right? Because you, I mean, this, this feels like probably the, you know, I'll probably ask you the every interviewer uh, question on the topic, but you, you still have so many folks that I think uh, uh, do always have the mindset of like, well, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like, why should I care, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, I guess kind of, uh, on that question, like what, what would you tell folks when, you know, uh, we obviously have many listeners that are definitely like kind of in the industry, if you will. And so I think it's, you know, that there's more of an evolved thinking there. Um, but we also have plenty of just kind of like, you know, tech enthusiasts. <laughs> we stuff, too, but, of like, we're yeah, just, you know, we're like, whatever, that ship is sailed. <laughs> totally. So I'm like, yeah, what, what, what does like, I guess, you know, in, in whatever broad sense you want to take it, like what, what does privacy uh, mean to you and, and kind of, you know, maybe in the, in the realm of the folks that are like, well, not doing anything wrong. So why should I care? Yeah, I I think it's, um again, it, it helps to do sort of, I, I mean, this is where shows like Black Mirror and that kind of thing are so important, right? It's like fiction totally. is such a good way for us to experience, you know, the, the dystopic sides of this thing. Like 1984 yeah. is still cited as this important work. And yet, and then at the same breath, I'll hear people say, well, that ship has sailed. And I'll give you an example on my LinkedIn. Someone had forwarded me this really well done video that showed an age, age progression of someone had taken a, a snapshot of a toddler and then using AI enhanced age enhanced and then had this young lady talking about, you know, having mm. her identity stolen and fake porn and all this stuff. And it was really interesting because I think some people are like, thank you. This is a good educational 10 second video. And then the other contingent were kind of like, this is fear mongering. And this is, and then a third contingent, one of whom was an attorney said that ship has sailed. And I thought, Hmm. well, I still drive on the road every day and I use my brakes and I now use my seatbelt. That was not the norm when we were kids. I'm older than you are, but you know, there's a huge ad campaign and insurance companies with massive penalties for people that weren't buckling their seatbelts. And, and isn't, it isn't, it isn't just the largesse of a society to say, I don't care that much about my life. I can go through the windshield. I've lived my time. You're also causing a huge mess and trauma for other people. So if you don't care about yourself enough, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a virtual hug. Um, but, our society is now so interwoven. And if we haven't seen the adverse impact on false narratives, on inflammatory speech, on harming yeah. individuals with rumor and unfounded fake stories, et cetera, then, then you're just not awake. So yeah. privacy is more than the alarmist arm. And, and I think privacy too, again, if you look at it as the authorized processing of personal data, the ability to over time build up your own value over, you know, people may love me, people may hate me. I have a style. I swear a lot. It's not very ladylike. Um, I'm very outspoken. I'm for the swearing. It's, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm down for it. It's a good part of our language. It's actually psychologically healing. Um, yeah. So people can make up their own minds about my opinion, yeah. about who I am. However, I've done the work. So if I have true factual stacks beyond my CV, people understand how to work with me. People have assumptions about how my privacy code platform works because they know how 
big of a pain in the ass I am about quality. They, they understand my point of view on privacy as a brand differentiator. So they're probably suspecting I'm thinking about ROI as much as I am some sort of campy notion of compliance. So yep. each one of us, if you compound that exponentially, if everyone is allowed to tell their own story when they want, how they want, to whom they want, it's not a matter of this quote unquote right to be forgotten, which never made sense to me. It's mm-hmm. more how do we interoperate with one another in our stories? Am I a valuable employee that's worthy of a promotion? Am I a valuable teacher that's worth worthy of listening to? Am I somebody who could mentor your kid? I, am I someone to be uh, funded to help make you wealthy? All of these data stories um, allow decision making in, in various ways. And sometimes it's just, you know, do I want to be this person's friend, which is, you know, psychological cohesiveness and valuable yeah. to community. So I think when you look at privacy in that more broad sense, and particularly if you think about the stories about anyone you love, it's really easy to understand A, why privacy is so hard because it's so contextual yeah. and time bound, and B, yeah. why it's so valuable. This is why. Like my dad used to say, there's only two kinds of customers that need privacy built into their fabric and their engineering and their processes. The first kind of company has employees and customers. The second kind of customer that needs privacy built into its fabric is a company that wants to have employees or customers. Those are the only kind of customers that need privacy. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the because because yeah, a lot of times uh, you know boil it down to the folks that are focused on privacy or, or folks that are kind of like, uh, you know, I don't do anything wrong, but there is the interesting, like kind of third area of it's like where people, people do know they do get it, but it's almost like a defeatist, like we, this, you know, like, same, oh, same so thing hard. in security where it's just like, yeah, you know, I, I always like on the security side, I always kind of talk in terms of like, it's this race without a finish line. Right. And so it's, it, uh, it, it's it's um it's hard not to have folks that have been doing it a long time to kind of have like a, a burnt out feeling of it because it feels like well there's always that next threat and next thing and next evolution and and uh, it's been I- interesting seeing some of uh, uh, privacy under the the, the same kind of lens of folks where it's just like you know we've already lost it so like why why bother or something and I'm just yeah. like ah uh, doesn't doesn't have to doesn't have to be that way and it is just a constant thing that requires uh, uh, effort and work. It's a whole thing. I mean, some things that are automated now that we can do to protect ourselves were really hard, you know, and and some things that are really easy, like working from home and having a video chat. Yeah. This was really hard at scale. We could not have had the same pandemic in 2000 Absolutely. We had 2020. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's, it, you know, same examples like you were mentioning of, uh, you know, what's happening in, in kind of AI now with really more so breakthroughs and machine learning and other stuff that's happening that's like not necessarily like a new science, right? But, uh, the, the timing for a whole variety of reasons is making it work now versus, uh, you know, I remember being a, a teenager in the mall, uh, where there would be like the virtual reality store and you're just yeah. like, you know, when's that happening? And then it like all went away for like 10, 15, years and now there's like you know the lightweight headset you can throw on to get the same i mean it, it's uh ti- timing uh in in technology uh is, is always very much a thing uh but you, you mentioned uh um at, at kind of the start uh this uh uh, concept of uh, privacy engineering, and I and I think it's also uh, related to what you do as CEO of uh, Privacy Code. But m- maybe kind of uh, for folks that might not be familiar, what what is uh, privacy engineering? Yeah, so um, 
there's a woman named Anne Kavukian. She was the commissioner in Ontario um, in the late 90s and through at least the audience. I, I don't know when she finally gave up her boots and now she's a professor. Uh, but she, she really uh, popularized the notion of privacy by design and came up with the seven principles of privacy. It should be built in and should be consumer centric, et cetera. That's the public policy goal. And that's what you'll find um, as of uh, 2010 in Jerusalem, the data commissioners meetings, there was a, a unanimous decree that every new law will include privacy by design. And so that's why GDPR has it and all these other laws. Um, the trick is getting that translation from what is that public policy goal? That's quite ephemeral. I think we can all sort of agree, you know, don't be evil. <laughs> hypothetically. Right. Um, but how does that actually break down how does that become executed? How do you measure quality? How do you repeat that? And so when my dad and I sat down, I, I'd given a speech at Carnegie Mellon um, on privacy engineering, really implementing privacy principles throughout systems, taking a systems engineered approach from people, process and things and building them across the system. And, you know, we were selling things like the Sunray at the time. If you remember, it was a dummy terminal with a 256-bit encrypted a smart key that you'd put in and hot desk and, and then we'd protect everything on the back end. And, yep. you know, it sounded a lot like time sharing at the time, but it was really quite revolutionary when you thought about a, a, an increasingly mobile workforce. So I gave a little talk on this and presented a paper on this and uh, a publisher came to me and said, you should write a book. And that was kind of the beginning of the Privacy Engineers Manifesto, which I wrote with my business partner, Jonathan Fox, who's still at Cisco um, can't afford him yet, but I will. Um, <laughs> my dad and then myself. So Jonathan was an early pioneer in technology licensing and on the marketing side of things, I was doing more of the legal sides and had taken on this executive role. And then of course my dad was the systems guy and within the privacy engineers manifesto, we started out writing a book called privacy engineering. I'm glad we didn't because at the same time in Finland, a book was coming out called privacy engineering by Ian Oliver, almost exactly at a bell labs. The same time we, that's how we met. Actually our books came out about the same year. We were both terrified that we'd oh, wow. see each other. Um, but you know, it was, calling it a privacy engineer and privacy engineering was sort of a wink between my dad and me because in civil engineering, they retain this notion of an ethical code and they mm -hmm. still, there still are privacy ethics, but it used to be when you were a PE or a, pri or, or a professional engineer, you would mm -hmm. sign on to a code of conduct. It still exists. You can see it on IEEE and stuff, but it's really more the civil people, the civil engineers, you know, if your building isn't engineered correctly, people die, <laughs> you know, the yeah. system falls yeah. down. If you don't engineer your privacy engineering, it sounds superficial until you realize that data is coming in and out of pacemakers and yep. schools and MRIs. And they're now helping AI-assisted technicians read radiology reports. And sometimes without so much of the radiologist looking at the report, we're getting automated decision making. So you can see we're having something, this notion of an ethical element and then implementing privacy by design using broad engineering principles, not just double, uh, yeah. double E or material science, but that's really where we came up with the notion of calling it a privacy engineer. Yeah. That, that makes a ton of sense. It's uh, I curious as like a follow-up and kind of some of the 
uh, you know, how it gets used in practice. Cause I, I was thinking in terms of like, you know, in, in maybe the broader like information security space, right. There's the, the difference of, um, I don't know if this will be a good parallel, but there's a difference of like companies where they're kind of, they're doing security in terms of where, you know, you buy a handful of products and you kind of implement them versus like you're doing security engineering. Right. Yes. And, and there's like a, yes. a definite distinction. And it, it makes me think similar where I you know, definitely with companies where, you know, maybe you're checking the right boxes from kind of like a regulatory privacy, but are you really like engineering in privacy in the way that you're talking? It seems like a, like a definite distinction. Well, and there's even a a further schism since we first started talking about it. There's, there's a whole variety of, of sort of what I call privacy engineering purists that consider if you're not a mathematician, then you can't possibly be a privacy engineer. I completely reject that notion, of course, but there is a very specialized um, notion of privacy engineering that really is more focused around anonymity and mathematical obscurity of mm. personalized data, um, which is important. But I don't think that spans, you know, when I think of an engineer and what engineers were, they look at the tools and materials around them. They look at, you know, is this a creek that I'm covering with a bridge or is this the Golden yeah. Gate Bridge? And and that determines what materials you use. And, and like you said, I mean, sometimes you can sort of train your way around privacy and say, be careful, kids, because you're not collecting data. And some people just don't click on links and you're fine. Don't click on links. It's fine. They'll never be phishing. Social engineering is not a thing. It's not Uh, a thing. Or you can actually really dig in and go, hey, you know what? Some of our personal assets here, some of our employees are really hard to replace and they're expensive. We should at least protect the HR data, maybe. Um, Some of our like when we actually close our books and we report to our public board, we have a fiduciary obligation to kind of get that right. So you can take socks and that's fine, but there's always a who. And you can think that intellectual property, I hear this a lot from CISOs. Oh, well, I don't really do the privacy part. I do the IP part. Well, I'm a former IP litigator. (laughs) So you can crap on me all you want that I'm not a double E. But when you say to me IP, I'm going to go, what IP? Or is it this recipe to the routers that's the most valuable thing? Or is it not the behavior of everyone on all of the routers around the world that's the important thing right now? And I'm yeah. going to go for door number two. Yeah. <laughs> so, and if you're just looking to, and I say just because it's hard, if you're just looking to be in compliance, maybe you are just trying to obscure that or make it quote unquote anonymous. And yeah. I think the whole Google ad tech experiment, they crested that and sort of have landed this in not a very comfortable way where they said, we'll just make everything anonymous. And it's just about differential privacy or statistical relevant, like some, you know, weirdly, you know, old lady, two kids, person who does privacy law in Los Altos. That's who we're going to market the ad to. Now, that's me. And there's like, I'm, I'm a pretty weird cat and I'm pretty unique, but it could be a couple similar people to me. <laughs> I also think, I think a, the regulators are onto us B with the, the weight and the volume and the size, whether we should or should not be doing this much compute to come up with common sense answers to common sense questions. Um, anonymity is, has always been hard to achieve. And in, in, in the advent of these language models, that are becoming really organic and, and fourth dimensional. 
um, with our voices and our faces and, and our blood types and our DNA, um, I think we're going to start to go back. It's a long-winded answer to your question, Mark, but no, it's, it's, I, I think that's why privacy engineering is still evolving even. And there's a fight within us. And, and this is, again, why I go on Dr. Phil, because I'm like, forget the infighting kids. This yeah. world is too big and there's too much of it for us to protect, to be yeah. like, hmm, you just do this and I just do this. And there's, you know, we'll just pretend that we work together. No, you actually yeah. have to like do a rugby huddle here. hundred <laughs> percent. No. And it's, it's interesting to me too, of like, you know, I think when I got started in security in like the late nineties, early 2000 timeframe and like, you know, there was uh, the, the, type of security, I guess I was doing then, you know, if like, you know, vulnerability threat research type of stuff, you, you could kind of like, you could kind of know all of it. And now there's like very, all these different specializations of like, you're doing malware or network or this or that. And it's, 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 I guess, really interesting too, in your world of like, uh, especially for folks that are maybe, maybe listening that, um, you know, are kind of uh, newer or, or looking for a path into, into uh, this world in general of like uh, exactly what you're bringing up of like privacy engineering and, and uh, it's probably a, a myriad of different uh, types and roles. But uh, I like the part that you're making of, e- even though there maybe are these different uh, areas, especially it's really the intersection of like how everything comes together that, that matters. And, and, um, we're like forever trying to break down silos in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, in so many. And sometimes just breaking into stuff and still breaking things apart and hoping that yeah. the extra screw wasn't that important. But you know, sure. this is a great example too, because privacy is, you know, probably 20 years behind where security is, even though it really was the California privacy law that like created a trillion dollars of security wealth because after you had to disclose the breach and we had that little safe harbor there to encrypt it, you could kind of get out of the breach for a little while there. Like that just spawned this huge thing. People forget that's a privacy law, Um, but we'll leave that jealousness aside. But now going into it, uh, privacy is really still behind. And so you do see some people saying, oh, let's do static analysis or let's start with a data map. And I'm kind of like, I like static analysis where I've laid down the rules. So if I've already done the work, I've done data modeling, and I've laid down the architecture, and I know what rules are supposed to be there, maybe you could scan for some patterns, but it's not the same as looking for Stack Overflow or DDoS attack. It's different. We don't have that much track record behind us. The other part is, if you've got a great security team, I'm going to assume that you can tell me something about what kind of apps that we have and how you're protecting the IO there. I'm going to assume that you've at least thought through what our risk profile is and and the shape at least of the IT footprint. So as a privacy person, often living in the general counsel's office and often with not a ton of software buying experience, if you're not talking to your technical classmates, you're doing your job wrong. Yeah. A lot of that wisdom, it may not be applied to privacy data, and it's probably not, but the wisdom of the shape of things and the owner and big air quotes of who's actually creating risk, generating data, deleting data. Are we deleting data ever? Do we still think that, you know, more is more and, you know, a big pile of pony dung equals ponies and not cholera? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. No, and it's, uh, Yeah, it's like the, um, I don't know, all these different like organizational, uh, silos that tend to exist. And, um, but, but they, 
they exist at um, really like the detriment to most companies in the sense that like for for attackers and and everybody else when we're thinking in terms of security and theft and everything like none of those silos exist like like for them and the, it's really more of uh, in some cases what kind of enables these outcomes. You um, never would say that to the CFO. Like I'm sorry. <laughs> You just stay over there and count your beans. I'm just going to do whatever I want to hear. No, you're going to assume he knows more about money or she knows more about money than you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, I have no good segue, but I wanted to also ask, uh, because I thought it was an interesting note that they mentioned to me. Uh, but you were basically like, uh, there was like a character, Reference to you in the usual suspects, which the reason I want to like totally no segue ask you is because I, I love that movie, found, found it to be an amazing movie. Uh, and, and I heard there's an interesting story there. Sorry, I'm just bringing it up out of the blue because no, I love the movie. Great. And I was like, how did that actually happen? You know, it's actually great because I've actually sent a few DMs to Chris McQuarrie, who's the author of that movie. Um, I'm like, dude, why are you not financing my company? You're richer than God. I see him all the time. So the white haired kind of bearded goateed guy um, that's always hanging around Tom Cruise now and all, all his like stuff. That's Chris McQuarrie. So Chris and I were high school sweethearts and we went to senior prom together and he was class clown. I was new because I was always new. We were always moving when I was a kid. And um, we used to go down to the Jersey Shore in my white, on the outside, blue Naga hide interior Ford Champ. And we would write in this thing he called the Book of Ideas. And uh, there's a guy who killed his entire family in New Jersey, John List. And so the usual suspects began as an exploration of what if you had done something so horrible um, and then you just like walked away from your life, which is what this real life character did. So mm-hmm. everybody in the movie, so my maiden name is Finnerin, and I was in law school um, when Suspects was shot. They had already won the Sundance Film Festival. So this is this is the set, the, the two degrees of, of Kevin Bacon. So Kevin Bacon yep. did this with Laurie Singer. Laurie C- Singer's cousin was a gentleman named Brian Singer, who's been in a lot of hot water lately. He didn't do anything naughty when I knew him, but um, he and Ethan Hawke and Chris were friends at my high school. And Ethan had gone on to do Goonies and all this other, you know, handsome, beautiful chin type work. Another must watch. Another must watch. So he went <laughs> off to do, go be famous. But it all kind of started with, with Brian getting into the business and having that entree into the business because of Laurie Singer and Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon making his big thing because Kira Sedgwick is the daughter of a billionaire. So it all comes down to money. So Chris writes this movie and everybody in the usual suspects is like someone that I know. So like all of all the names are people like who Chris either worked with when he was like doing, he was a security guard in Australia for a while. He worked at a boys uh, school. He was a big cut up. Um, and, and it's funny that he's made millions and millions as a writer now because he graduated high school with a D minus from our English teacher, a uh, guy named uh, Mr. Barrist, who was wonderful. Um, and so Edie Finneran was uh, the lawyer. And at the time I was dyeing my hair blonde. So Susie and me was supposed to be a close approximation in the movie. Love it. I love it. And I, and I heard you have some aspirations for uh, your own writing that might have spawned from a legal case that uh, oh you discovered a, a warehouse. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you have like, I like, I want to keep asking you privacy, but you have some really other interesting, like, 
<laughs> like I could go on and on. But yeah, you know what, why? What we get with? into mayhem, Mark. That's why we get into. I'm just the- saying. I'm just saying. Uh, I might yeah. bust a beer beer out midday, and uh, but yeah, a warehouse <laughs> full of body parts. How does that fit yes. into uh, legal privacy, etc. Background? Yeah. So I, I was a patent litigator, and and what that means when you're right out of school, especially when you're a woman in the '90s for a New York firm, is like you're still wearing mandatory pantyhose and blue polyester suits. So and skirts. We weren't allowed to wear pants to work. Still, I mean, it's crazy. I'm not that old. Yeah. <laughs> we were not. I was actually sent home from work for wearing a uh, double-breasted um, blazer and pantsuit combination because I just, just getting too crazy. Just too yeah. crazy. Wild. Wild. <laughs> no one really needs to see my knees then, then or now. So. Um, I, I was sent down to a warehouse to do document retrieval um, for a pharmaceutical company for a patent case. And basically, you're looking for the oldest um, reduction to practice of that invention. So you're going through all these banker boxes on these big wooden pallets. It's out in the middle of the desert in Southern California. And all of a sudden, this guy, Robert, who I was working with, um, who happened to be a former um, um, he had an MDJD. He was a he was a coroner or, or one of their assistants. I don't know what the official title was, but he'd worked in like the morgue before he went to law school. So he's like, "You got to look at this." And so we opened these boxes, and there in these jars of formaldehyde was like a human heart and a human hand. And we started digging through these files, and this lab that we were uh, representing had acquired another lab that had done work for the LA Sheriff's Department in the 1960s. And so there were boxes and boxes and boxes from all of the public lynchings that you really don't hear about from LA. You hear about the Deep South. There were a lot of public lynchings and all sorts of civil rights crimes uh, and murders. Um, and, And all of this evidence had been collected and not processed and hiding out in this warehouse in the 90s that um, that we discovered and and we reported. And so the end of the real story is we reported and the sheriff's office took custody. And hopefully some of these people got justice later in life because DNA. Yeah. Um, But that was kind of like that's my novel of, you know, imagine going through and finding the, the real cover up because you really didn't hear a lot about yeah. this going on in this part of the country. There's kind of the spin of the stories. Again, stories that we tell about ourselves and, and yeah. when and what's true and what's not has there's, there's been a spin on this from day one since, you know, Fred came out of his cave and knocked net on the, on the noggin. Yeah. With <laughs> and it, no, I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, a, a, what a crazy story, but it's, it's um, yeah, it seems you know, now, now more than ever, like there, there's, uh, just where technology is at and kind of, you know, I think about it for like, you know, my, my kids growing up in a world in which like, it's going to be ever harder to kind of, you know, discern, you know, reality from not, you know, given kind of what technology is allowing the enable and, and also just, just the reality or uh, there's reality too many times. Uh, but also just the fact that like, um, you know, the virtual reality, um, and, uh, you know, kind of virtual currencies, everything else. And in some sense, currency has always been virtual, I guess. Um, it's not, not really been real. It's just all these shared beliefs we have. Right. But now the, uh, uh, the shared beliefs that we have that kind of make up society can be, you know, falsified with, with, um, 
uh, pretty amazing realness, I guess. And like, I, I guess when you, when you think kind of going forward, is there any kind of like, you know, main things that you think about that, um, you know, wh- whether in the realm of privacy or technology, just in, in general, right. With just the kind of state of where we're at and the, uh, you know, the ability to kind of, um, you know, put forth things that are, that are untrue, whether audio, video, and, and, and more, uh, like, what, what do you think, how, how do you think that unfolds? <laughs> yeah, it's a big question, but I think it's a really important one. I think, especially when we start to feel, you know, like this one attorney who I didn't know, wasn't even connected with me, just felt like he needed to inform me that, you know, this AI paradigm and, and the downsides of, you know, recording your kids and, and, and I'm a terrible oversharer. I love my kids. So I, terrible. I, you know, I gave them code names of Sweet Cheeks and Ms. Thang, but beyond that, like their faces are everywhere. Um, but, you know, he decided that AI ship has sailed. He was like a trusted estates lawyer. I was like, why do you have an opinion about this? And why, A, why are you being rude? So what are the manners online? So why can yep. some senior attorney from a totally different field feel empowered to you know, is this free speech or is this just you being an ass? Um, I think it feels like the latter. It didn't, <laughs> didn't add anything to the discussion except to reveal that there are educated people that have uneducated points of view on things that they know nothing about. Um, yep. I think the other thing that's interesting is when I think about um, particularly my younger daughter, who's much more um, both of my daughters are beautiful. One is more glamorous than the other and more, much more like wants spangles on everything. <laughs> we will have like a hundred years from now, it will be probably just as hard to discern what I looked like from the one or two Polaroids that existed from my childhood and what she actually looks like out of the millions of self photos that she's taken and has exchanged like every 10 minutes on someone's story. That's just, they just take a picture of their face. And so I think it will be as hard to tell what she actually looks like as it is me because there's such a scarcity of data and there's so much data that's been manipulated in a million different ways in in her case. Um, But it's, it's a very different experience. You know, I, in, in my mind's eye can be as glamorous. I was not, um, I was not, um, I, I actually had somebody said, somebody said to me, I can't remember what the context was anymore, but they just said, Oh, Michelle's like some sort of faded prom queen. And I called home to my dad. It was some, you know, executive man who was being rude to me. And I was like, he called me a faded prom queen. And, and of course, my dad being very crunchy engineer type, he's like, oh, darling, you were never a prom queen. <laughs> I was like, that's your takeaway, man. You're um, like, oh, good. But I would be as fantastical in my memory as I want to be. And that's, that's freedom. Yeah. And, and yeah. yet our daughters and, and sons they are as fictitiously curated now yeah. in real time. So I think, I think how we yeah. decide what our culture looks like, what, what it looks like to have a universal culture, because despite all of this connectivity and all these stories that we can prove and tell and have real data, mm-hmm. we still have people who will instinctually tell you they just don't do business in the PRC and other people that are like, you know, there were no lynchings in LA. Yeah. And yet, yeah. 
you know, yeah. we're people and yeah. we're humans and um, we're a lot more the same than we are different at the, at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you've obviously had an uh, amazing journey, and uh, I know we talked a little bit, but um, I, I'd love to know more um, uh, privacy code, uh, what, what, uh, uh, where you're kind of currently at. Uh, or, or, uh, we have some VCs even listening uh, here. VCs, uh, get your checkbooks out, kids. Get your checkbooks <laughs> out. Checkity check. No, I, lo- I love it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I just lo- love to know more of, uh, about uh, uh, privacy code and kind of, you know, where are you looking to take things there? Yeah. So I, and I should self-promote more. That probably tells you why my, my journey has been slower than it should be. Um, we are proceed. <laughs> we are post customer. We have a platform that works. We basically cool. are um, an AI driven engine. You can um, upload your written documents, whether that's a privacy impact assessment, RFP or a policy, and it'll read onto a captive library in three different subject matters. One is data quality and governance, mostly governed by the DAMA type um, um, standards. Um, Privacy, of course, which is my kind of hometown wheelhouse, which is, you know, covers things from secure control frameworks, ISO uh, 27012, and as well as 27701. Thank you, ISO, for making numerical (laughs) nonsensical. Um, And and that's a girl who loves numbers and uh, responsible AI and new tech. So how you actually set up, like we set up a program when I was at uh, McAfee Intel to do responsible AI review, but we called it responsible new tech. And the gal that was working with us 10 years ago is still running the program, Denise Cheney. Go Denise. Um, it, it has, you know, the, the topics change and the complexity changes, but gathering the provenance of, of your algorithms and understanding the outputs, understanding how, how are you planning to detect bias? How often are you detecting bias? All this stuff. These are knowable things. And some of them are still in draft from a legislative perspective. Um, and some of them are, are quite well known. So the model cards, et cetera. And so we break down all of these tasks into processes and technology, and we create um, programs so that you can basically walk the walk. So like you said before, it's like some people do checklists. I don't, I don't really do that, <laughs> but it's not just me or my team. You can't have a team no. big enough to be the security team or the privacy team. And you can't just train and say, security is everybody's job. You have to say, if you're you a UX person, do not pre-fill in this checkbox. So we right. are very specific on you know, what to do, how to do it, what type of person gets assigned it, and then we create proof. So it's an AI on the front end to use LLMs to read in for requirements. We are the console so that you informationally know where you're going cross-functionally. And and once your CPO leaves, you're not left with like a sucking sound of, oh God, she left us some spreadsheets, but I don't have all those relationships already nailed. You actually have a working system. And then we use A on the back end to say, you know, all each task is tied back to these standards. What actually is working in the wild? What's thematically um, sort of on trend? Uh, what could you do a little more to recommend? And so it's called privacy code because we really want to break the spine and just become the code that's like a code that's of cool. conduct, legal code, as well as software and hardware. That was very, very cool. Um, definitely people check it out. And, um, you know, we kind of talked in the beginning, um, you know, b- based on when you got uh, started and no doubt, 
uh, I'm sure you have many, many stories of having to break through a, a whole variety of walls, uh, fire, <laughs> firewalls and other ones, um, you know, yeah. and uh, I, I think it's obviously really, really cool the things that you've done. But, you know, I think uh, one of the reasons that we like kind of sharing these sort of stories and focusing on these things from a podcast is, uh, I think, as, as, as you kind of mentioned in the beginning, like the ability to pay it forward for folks that are getting started to, to be able to be there. And we try to have kind of hopefully an exponential effect here and kind of sharing the stories. But, you know, the, the I kind of had asked you, you know, um, anybody that was kind of the uh, inspiration and looking up to you and obviously you referenced your, your parents as a great example of that. Um, you know, a good chance there's somebody right now that's maybe listening uh, that is uh, going to be curious and, and maybe find this as their own career. I, any advice to somebody that, you know, might be curious to kind of get into this uh, uh, this area of security, this this area of privacy in this field, uh, and kind of how they might uh, begin to even go about that beyond just the, yeah. the necessity of just be curious, uh, yeah. which I think we all agree. But yeah, uh, but this, yeah is well, the, this is a great time to get in. So, uh, you know, yeah. of the hundreds of young privacy tech startups, I'm the only one that's founded by a chief privacy officer. That needs to stop. That's madness. I mean, of course, I'm biased. And if you're a VC, you should write me a checkity check because we are going places. <laughs> but I'm not going to build everything. So we're going to have the, the moral equivalent of firewalls and pen testers. We're going to have lists for malware lists. We're going to have scanners that actually work because we've done the work to figure out what a pattern of privacy demonization is for proportionality. Um, mm -hmm. That that work has not been done. And then the other thing I think it's most important is we need buyers. So I think the majority of on the sales side, people will ask me about their current either tool set or lack thereof and say, can you fix this? And, and I'm like, this is, I, I would like to refer you to my services partners. Um, but fixing other vendors crap is not really what new companies do. However, yeah. Um, the way that you fix that is be a buyer with a capital B. I, mm -hmm. If anyone thinks that Scott McNeely was like, oh my God, Michelle, you were so right, dude. Like when I said there's no privacy, get over it. I was wrong, dude. Hit the budget. No, no. He gave me nothing but absolute resistance. However, I came with a business plan. And I came again and I came again and I came again. And then he gave me a job and no budget. And then I came again and I came again and I came again and he gave me a title and he gave me a budget and he gave me a team. No one's going to hand this to you. Nope. It's valuable. It's scary. You'll spend a lot of time saying things that people do not understand. Keep coming. Come, 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 come and ask all the questions that you think are stupid because a lot of the stuff that we built as the first line sucks. It sucks. I had wood and, and I was whittling like a dum-dum. You guys have blueprints, you have architecture, you have graduate classes, you have mentors, you have budget, you have venture people who say that they want to invest in privacy. I'd like to meet those people. <laughs> But you're, not, you're never just going to sit on your butt and just go, oh, my God, I'm going to be a C-suite executive and make a million dollars a year and do no work. No, yeah. it's hard. You have that C in front of your title because you have to use it as a shield, as an umbrella, as a bucket to put your pee in. 
you got to just keep going. <laughs> got to grind. I couldn't agree more. Well, Michelle, it's fantastic having you today. I really, really appreciate you spending the time and sharing your stories. And uh, I feel like there's uh, plenty more, so we might have to do a part two at some point. But really appreciate having you on. Thank you. I love the podcast and keep it going. I love all these these stories. And, um, you know, I'm all about the, the stories we tell to each other about each other. So thank you, Mark. This is really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care.